We are in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 26 this morning. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among brothers." And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those who he, he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is the word of the Lord. you bow your heads with me and pray one more time before we look at this text this morning. Father, I pray this morning that you will help me to unpack Romans chapter 8 as we look at it again. I pray, Father, that that uh, you would use the truths in this text to help us, Lord, to more um, consistently and live out this life of faith. Help us, Lord, to see here how deeply loved we are by you. Father, we, we thank you for the fact that you don't leave us to make up what it is to be loved by God, but you tell us. And so, Lord, we're grateful for that and, and uh, open our eyes to see today. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said last week, um, we're kind of looking at all this from the view of 10,000 feet up. We can't intricately get into all of Romans 8 in the time we have remaining to do that among you. This morning, my intent is for us to look really at Romans 8 one more time here and then next week to make some application to all of what we've said in chapters 1 through 8 of Romans as we conclude here. But this morning, as we look back at Romans 8, um, I want us to remember the context of Romans 8. It is incredibly important as we looked at particularly um, Romans 8:28 and some of that we talked about the context in which Paul wrote those words and it's important I think for us to see the context of Romans chapter 8 and it's really summed up in words that we didn't read even this morning but if you go down to verse 38 this is this is kind of a summation the song that we sang is a summation of what Paul is writing in Romans chapter 8 he says for I am sure 
that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a stunning promise made to us there. It's the culmination of of layer upon layer that Paul writes to us about that love. And it's a promise for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. It's not a general promise to the whole world, but it's a specific promise to those who have taken refuge in Christ, those who have realized that they have an incredible need in their sin and that in themselves they cannot merit a righteousness that would be good enough or accomplish a righteousness that would be good enough. They look to Christ and look to his righteousness to be theirs. That's the promise that comes to us for all who have done that, that nothing will now separate us from the love of Christ for all eternity future. It will never cease to us. And the reason that Paul writes that, the context now that he writes those words is is in the context of um, helping us to see that we need to suffer well. He, He doesn't write those words in the context of ease, but he writes those to a people who he knows will face some opposition and face some persecution and face some things like um, swords that it talks about in verse 35 and tribulation and distress and famine and nakedness, all of those things. He's writing it in the context of that kind of a situation. So basically the reason for Romans 8 is that we would, we would suffer well in a broken world a world that is not as it ought to be. And some of that brokenness just comes to us uh, in in disease and in our bodies failing us. But other comes in opposition. We don't face that as much where we live now, although I think that the day is quickly coming that that may be more of the case for us as Christians. To name the name of Christ is, is becoming increasingly unpopular in the land that we live. But whether it comes that way or other ways, that in the midst of difficulty in living in a broken world, however that brokenness comes at us, that we will suffer well. Why do I think that? We go back to Romans chapter 8 and verse uh, 17, where it was talking about um, those who this promise is for and, and what the results of that promise were and what happens in the lives of people who understand this promise is one is they have the Holy Spirit living within them. But a second thing that it talked about that we talked about a few weeks ago is we have this hope provided, it says in verse 17, the latter part provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That doesn't mean that if we suffer enough, we gain it. But rather it means, and we talked about that text, is when suffering comes. This, the promise is when suffering comes, we don't deny him. 
When suffering comes, we don't shake our fist at him, but we live under his providence. We live under what he has sent to us, realizing we live in a broken world with an open hand, not a clenched fist. When, when suffering comes, and Paul's preparing them, he's, it's going to come at times in our lives. It's going to come in all of our lives, whether it is because, again, of just disease and the brokenness of life that comes at our bodies or whether it is actual opposition of others that come to us Paul wants us to learn to suffer well and suffer without denying our our Lord and uh, so that's one reason he writes I think Romans chapter 8 the second reason that I think he writes Romans chapter 8 to us is so that we will be released to radically love others that we will be released to radically love others because we're freed we're freed from the fear of our own eternal future it's it's secure and as we understand that kind of security that Romans chapter 8 talks about of all those who are in Christ. It allows us to live in an abandonment. Um, In one place, Paul talks about faith working through love, that we would be people who love our world because our future is secured. We can live in abandonment to the needs and to the help of others. We can give our lives away. So those are the two motivations, I think, in Paul writing Romans chapter 8, the context of what it comes to us in, those promises that we would suffer well, as we talked about last week, um, that we would, we would live out the reality of the song we closed with last week, the song that was written by William Cooper, remember? God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. And, and last week, we, we talked a bit about Cooper. William Cooper wrote a number of, of weighty hymns that continue to be sung in the church. Maybe my favorite is the one that we sang last week. Um, he uh, suffered all of his life from melancholy. They called it melancholy then, but it was depression. And... and had at times had to wonder and struggle and wrestle with that why God why why this heaviness in his life in fact I said last week John Newton um, who wrote Amazing Grace and was a slave trader and converted to Christ was his pastor and he spent hour upon hour with Newton minister with uh, Cooper ministering to him and helping him and walking him through and out of that struggle that Cooper experienced we have songs that have such weightiness and help to us songs that say these kinds of things God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform he plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm deep in his dark and hidden minds With never-failing skill, he fashions all his bright designs and works his sovereign will. That's Cooper writing that, who struggled deeply with depression. In the midst of that, these kinds of things came out. Oh, fearful saints, new courage take. The clouds that you now dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, 
he hides a smiling face. In other words, a, a difficult circumstance, a frowning providence. But God is, beh- is working behind all of that and in all of that for our ultimate good, as we talked about. And then it says God's purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Blind unbelief is sure to err if it doesn't know the truths of Romans chapter 8. If we don't know truths like Paul teaches in Romans chapter 8, we will wrestle. We will wrestle in ways we ought not to have to wrestle and struggle in ways we ought not to have to struggle. And so Cooper knew the reality of that. He knew the reality of the promises of God that he had to hold on to in the midst of some really dark times in his life. And yet, look what comes out of that. Look in which ways God orchestrated that to bring to us songs that have such meaning of depth for us in the church. So, God gave us Paul to give us Romans 8 to help us to suffer well and then to be released Again, be released to radically love others. Um, I don't know if I can properly convey this today, but God didn't give us the promise that we will look in Romans chapter 8, the promises of the gospel, the promises of good for us and all of that, so that we could, and this is the picture I have, he didn't give us that truth so that we could somehow set on a nice sunny day on our deck or on our porch or on our patio or wherever we're sitting with a a cup of coffee merely to revel in it. Now, there's a place to revel in it. There's a place to to let it feed our soul. But that's that's not the end of all of that. That's not the end to which God gives us such stunning promises. The end to which God gives us stunning promises is that we would radically go to our world and give our lives away to those around us so that they too might understand the message of Christ. That's what these promises are for. Not to end with us alone, but to cause us to be imitators of God as loved children of God. So this morning, what I want to do is just look at them again. Look at the hope of the gospel because I'm convinced, even as I said in the prayer time, that the answer to, as I read those things that Paul admonishes us to do, the answer is not deeper resolve alone. Rather, the answer is that we see more clearly how much we are loved so that then we can, in abandonment, love others. We can go to our world and love them. So, What I want to do this morning as we just walk through Romans chapter 8, as we conclude in this and next week make some application to that more fully, I just want to give you five things, five things that Paul tells us about how deeply we are loved if we are in Christ, if we have looked to the righteousness of Christ to be our own. One of them is review. In fact, the first couple of review. If you look at verse 28... Look at the text there. Again, re-reminded of what we talked about last night. And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. All things work for our good if we are in Christ. 
all things. There's no exclusion clause in that. Everything works to our eternal good. Now, last week we made the point that that's not hard to see when things go well, is it? It's not hard to see that when things are going well, it's going good. So that's a promise for the hard times. It's a promise for the times when it doesn't feel good. When things come into our lives and we experience suffering. Again, you see the idea of how to experience and walk through suffering. When, when hard times come, when hard times come, God is working our eternal good. That's his promise. That's his bedrock, solid promise to us. All things in the life of a believer work for their eternal good. So the question we ask, how well did you remember that this week, if you were here? How well did you remember that? How many times did murmuring rise up in you this week? Complaint rise up in you this week? I gave you the illustration as I left last week as I concluded about the Sunday at my home when pressure built and pressure built to the point as I walked by my car, I put my fist down on my car that morning and for the next umpteen years that I owned that car, every time I looked at the fender, I remembered that day because I put a dent in it. And what I was saying to God that day was, you're not taking very good care of me. You're not taking very good care of me. Nobody else knew what that dent meant, but I knew. I knew. It's a reminder of how easily it is to forget his promise. That all things, all things work to good. And, and the degree to which we don't believe that, we murmur and we complain and we do all manner of other evil like that. And it is evil. It is not trusting God's promise. It is sin in our lives. God promises all things. And we learn it in the mundane of life, don't we? Um, certainly in the hard times, we need to be reminded of it. We need to live it out. But oftentimes, it's in the mundane, day-to-day -day stuff of life that we learn that lesson. We think, well, it's not a big deal. My complaining, my murmuring is not a big deal. It is. It's not trusting his promise that all things work to good. And he turns those things to our eternal good. The second thing last week that we talked about again quickly, verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the point we made was, Lots of people can be against us. Lots of things can come against us. So the question there is, if God be for us, who can be against us, needs to add the word successfully. The point is that nothing can successfully be against us. Look in chapter 8, verse 36. Uh, if you read down there in that list of of things. It says, what, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? It's pretty severe, isn't it? If the sword is against us, and the sword can come against us, maybe figuratively or literally, but there can be things that come at us, and the point is nothing can successfully be against us. God will turn everything 
to our eternal good, even those who come against us, even those who want to push against us, even the devices of Satan himself to come after us. God turns them to his eternal good. An example of that that we don't always see, we don't always see it in this life, but I go back to Cooper, William Cooper. Depression was against him. He, he struggled with it. He agonized over it. I'm sure he hated it. I'm sure Newton spent hour after hour working with him in it. And yet God turned it for his eternal good and our eternal good in the songs that Cooper wrote, the songs that came out of that agony of his soul. And then number three, let's move on now to the third one. The third point is in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32. Look what it says. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Then it says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? As I look back in my ministry of, of times when I would pray publicly, pray like in the pastoral prayer here, or pray on Sunday mornings with the worship team, or other times I would gather, there are really two texts that came to my mind most often in those years. One is Isaiah 64.4. It's the text that that you put on the rock that's in our rock garden. No one has seen any God like our God who acts or works in behalf of those who wait for him. That text, I, I probably prayed that one the most, but I think the, one, the second one that comes to my mind as I come to prayer times most often is this text right here. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's an incredible text. It's an incredible promise that comes from God. It is a promise of the never-ending generosity from God for his people. Again, you, you have to qualify it. It's not, it's not to all mankind, but it's to his people. It's to those who are in Christ, those who have looked to Christ to be their hope and help. Their, uh, they... Uh, they put the full weight of their trust in him. For them, the promise is that he will give us never-ending generosity. And for all eternity, it will be. For now, in this life, in the now and not yet of the kingdom, it comes to us. But one day, it will be ever-expanding. That's, that's the incredibleness of that promise. It isn't as though he will be gracious to us at a certain level and that will continue through all eternity. But I think it is an ever-increasing generosity and grace that will come to us. Because anything, even graciousness that is static uh, for that length of time would turn stale. And so I think there's an ever-expanding graciousness that will come to us through all eternity future as we spend it with our God. Can you imagine that? Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace that just could multiply it again and again for all eternity future. He will be gracious to a people. Now, in this time, we, we often say it like this, I think now the promise 
that he will graciously give us all things. We have to define things. What things does he give us? He gives us what we need. What we need to live out this Christian life, I think. And what we need to live out this Christian life is the ability to live for his glory. The ability to to be an imitator of God in that sense. And so what God, I think, promises is all the grace we need in any circumstance of life to live for his glory. To live for his glory. That's a promise God gives us all we need in any circumstance at any time to live for the glory of God. And, and one day, I think, again, that graciousness will just continue on for all eternity future. But there'll be no hindrance then. It'll be a different dynamic, as I said in my Sunday school class this morning. One of the things I weary of, one of the things I weary of is the fickleness of living in this life, even living the Christian life in this life. The, the fact that we live now in a, in a body that betrays us at times, a body where sin finds beachheads to, to come out, in a body that sees the glory of God, um, but doesn't respond as we should. A body that you can't just flip a switch and the emotions be what they should. One day, none of that hindrance will be there. One of the day, we will be released from that, and the response of our soul will be what it ought to be. There'll be no hindrance in it because of brokenness. But God promises, God promises to be gracious to us for all eternity future, to graciously give us all things, and one day set us free from any of the hindrances we have now. Why? Why does he promise to do that? Why can we be confident of that promise? And here's the text. It says, he who did not spare his own son. That's how he qualifies it. He who did not spare his own son. In other words, it's the argument, as another would say, from the hardest to the easiest. In other words, if God did the hardest thing, and the hardest thing was not to spare his son. It's a piece of cake to give the rest. It's a given to give the rest. He didn't spare his son. He gave him up for us all, which should help us to trust the promise that if he did that, if he did the hardest, will he not help us now? And the promise is he will. He will graciously give us all things we need for godliness in this life to glorify him and then for all eternity future and what he did in this life in not sparing his son was provide a righteousness for us that's what romans is about a righteousness from god that's that's the starting of all of this if you're here this morning and have not embraced that if you've not trusted god for that righteousness that Christ accomplished. We talked about it. You can go back and listen to messages. We won't go back all over all of that. But the glory of God in the face of Christ is that God provided a righteousness that is enough. A righteousness that was accomplished outside of us. An alien righteousness, if you will. Not one that we produce, but one he produced, and he promises to give it to us. 
That's what giving his son did. A righteousness that then allows us to participate in all of these promises. All the promises that God gives us. Number four. Another promise from Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 33. Another question, really, that is asked. And it says there in verse 33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Remember earlier the question, if God be for us, who can be against us? And the answer is, lots of people can be against us. Lots of things can be against us, but God turns them all for our good. They may try to come against us, but God uses them for our eternal good. Here again, another question is asked. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Happens a lot. Charges come against God's elect. In my life it does. I suspect it does in yours. I suspect there are times when you can allow yourself to fall back under condemnation, to think, oh, oh. Satan can do that, can't he? Can't he try to bring things back to us? There are times that God brings things back to me in the past. Sometimes when I visit localities, brings things back to my mind, and I think, oh, same thing probably happens for you as you look back in your life. So Satan can do that. But again, the difference is, if God be for us, who can be against us? No one successfully. In the same way in this, if we are in Christ, who can bring any charge against God's elect that sticks, that condemns? And the answer is no one. No one. If we are in Christ, no one, not even Satan, can bring an accusation against us that sticks because the only sin, the only sin that can condemn us is an unforgiven sin. The only sin that can condemn you is an unforgiven sin, is a sin for which Christ did not already take your punishment. And that includes past, present, and future. Christ took it all. He took it upon himself. He who had no sin became sin for us. He took the penalty. And so, though Satan can make the accusation, if you're in Christ, if you have trusted the righteousness of Christ and trusted him to be your sin bearer, there is no sin, no accusation, no charge though it may be true, that can be held against you. That's the glory of the gospel. Where in your life, maybe even this week, maybe even this morning, what charge has Satan tried to bring against you? How do you battle it? You battle it with Romans 8. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? That sticks. And then it goes on to say, it is God who justifies. That's not just thrown in there. That's not just an afterthought that Paul had. It seals the case. 
You think about our court system in our country. You can, you can win at one level and be overturned the next. And that can happen multiple times. But not in this case. Because it said it's God who justifies. He is the Supreme Court. When they decide, it's final. And though the same is with God. It's God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? There's nobody condemned when God justifies. And so if you're in Christ, God has justified you. And there's no appeal. There's nothing beyond that. And we glory in that. And then finally, we end where we began. And that is that nothing, nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing, nothing if we're in Christ. He loves us with an everlasting love that will never end. Even at times when we um, don't live as we should, when our bodies and its fickleness betrays us, even at times when we don't feel loved, God loves us with an everlasting love. That's, again, not a promise for all people. It's not a promise for everybody. The world would like to latch on to it and hold on to it and say, God is love, and therefore I'm safe. But the truth of the matter is, it's only for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Scripture talks about his elect. It's those who are in Christ, who have been justified, as the text said, who ultimately will be glorified. That's the promise. And so this morning, Do you hear that? Do you hear the glory of the gospel? Do you know what it is to be loved by God that way? Do we functionally live there as we live out our lives? The evidence will be that we suffer well, not perfectly, but when suffering comes, when difficulty comes, we hold on to the promise of God. We don't shake our fist ultimately at him, but we cast ourselves upon him and trust his promise. And secondly, that we're released to radically love other people, love those around us. We aren't constantly worrying about ourselves because we don't have to worry about ourselves because of the security that we have in the promises of Romans chapter 8 that all things work to good to those that love him, that if God be for us, no one can be against us. If God justifies, there's no one to condemn. And we are released in abandonment to give our lives away to others and to love them and to help them to understand the message. So Romans chapter 8 is an incredibly key text in our life of faith. How are we doing? How are we doing in living in it? How are we doing in really believing it and holding on to it? How are we functionally living it out in our lives? I pray God is helping us to do that. I pray that you have times in your life to remind you that it's not good to murmur. 
It's not good to complain. And more and more God is catching you in those kinds of times. And, and we look again to God. We don't scan his work with blind unbelief, but we scan his work in light of his promises in Romans chapter 8. We're going to close this morning with a song that we sang already, but I hope it has even fuller meaning as we walk through Romans chapter 8. I will glory in my Redeemer. Do we glory in him? Do we glory in his promise? Do we hold on to the promises of Scripture? Um, it was interesting to me as I was preparing for this Sunday, I was reading again about 9-11 and some of the events that happened, particularly the plane that crashed in Pennsylvania. And uh, remember the people in the back of that plane, uh, there was a gentleman, I think, it was, I think it was Todd Beaner was his name, who yelled, let it roll or something to that effect as they rushed to the front of the plane to kind of overtake the um, hijackers, really in the sense to no avail, the plane still crashed. But his wife was interviewed in Decision Magazine following that event. And Todd was a, a, a believer, his wife was a believer. And it was interesting what she said. She made the comment that they had a memorial service for her husband, a separate private memorial service, and then they had a public memorial service later where there were lots of different people there and dignitaries, and I'm sure all of that there. And she said in, in her testimony that that was, that was her hardest moment, that public um, funeral, that public memorial service, was the hardest time in all of the events that happened in 9-11. And the reason was, is because uh, there was just no hope. It was, it was such, a, such a generic kind of service in the sense that there just was no hope in it. People tried to, to give hope, but they tried to give hope in every place that didn't work rather than in places like Romans chapter 8. She didn't say Romans 8, but that's what she meant. Rather than in God. And that's what happens a lot of times in those kind of generic um, public services. Try to give hope where there's no hope to be found. The hope to be found is in promises like, if God be for us, who can be against us? In promises like, all things work to good to them that love God and are called as according to his purpose, even plane wrecks in Pennsylvania, as horrific as that was. Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. Who will condemn us? It's God who justifies. Those are the kinds of promises that when suffering comes and difficulty comes, that hold us. And they hold us because we've learned to practice them in the mundane so that when the hard times come, we're helped. Let's stand and sing. I will glory in my Redeemer Whose priceless blood has ransomed me 
Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree. I will glory in my Redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death. My only Savior promise for your people, a promise for those who've had their eyes open to embrace a righteousness from God that is by faith, Father. Help us to live in the reality of that promise, Lord, as we go forth in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in God's peace. <laughs>